you would turn in your Bibles this morning to James chapter 4. And this morning we'll be reading verses 4 through 10. And before we read this passage, I want to remind you that uh, James is writing to the church. And and he's, he's called uh, these people, and, and by extension, he is writing to us. But as he writes these, this letter, he's, he's called them his brothers uh, back in chapter 1. That's how he began the letter, basically, writing to his brothers. And, and your translation may say brothers and sisters, because uh, he uses the, the masculine pronoun there, but it can be translated brothers and sisters, much like I've said this before, I use the word you guys, which means everybody. Um, and even more than that, uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, he calls us uh, beloved brothers and sisters. Beloved. He, he's writing this out of love. And I remind you of that uh, because when we get to this passage, the names he calls us aren't quite so nice anymore. Uh, but he is writing this in love, and what we get here is uh, perhaps uh, one of, if not the most strongly worded calls to repent uh, anywhere in the New Testament, really. He is uh, quite forward in what he will tell us this morning. And so we will read James chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he, he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. Back in the year 85 or around the year 85 in the, in the first century, there was a, a baby born, uh, Marcion. Uh, was his name, and, and he became uh, big in the church. He was uh, one of the early leaders, and he followed his, his father's footsteps, but he started teaching heresy, which became known as Marcionism, or depending on where you are in the world, it might, uh, you might hear it called uh, Martianism. Uh, but this, this Marcionism, and I've mentioned this term before, and what it, the teaching was is that the, the wrathful Hebrew God of the Old Testament uh, was a separate and lower entity 
than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. Basically, that there were two different gods there, this, this uh, wrathful uh, and lower God of, of the Old Testament and then the God of the New Testament. Well, um, he was denounced by a heretic. There's some great church leaders back then. Uh, if you know church history, names like Arrhenius and Tertullian and Justin Martyr and, and Polycarp and and uh, they excommunicated him back in uh, 144 uh, as a heretic because his teaching just uh, is dangerous on a number of levels. And, and one of the things that we notice when we look at today's passage is, is we will point out that James uh, is speaking a little bit like an Old Testament prophet speaks when he talks to us. The, this is basically how the prophets uh, spoke to Israel many times. And he alludes often to the Old Testament. There's, there's more than I'll be able to point out even, but much of his language comes uh, from Old Testament prophets. And there is no question when we look at James there is no question that the God of the Old Testament that hates sin is still the God of the New Testament. And we need to keep that in mind. And James is very clear uh, when he points that out. And as I mentioned, he starts with some Old Testament prophet type language right away in verse 4 when he calls us you adulterous people and in fact uh, in Greek that's uh, it's a feminine term you adulteresses is what he calls us and it's not that he's writing to women who are in adultery but he's writing as the Old Testament prophets spoke to Israel about spiritual infidelity that Israel often fell into. Uh, you'll find it many places. One of the places is in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, the prophet writes, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. There's many other places that same theme gets brought up. Uh, in fact, in the book of Hosea, uh, that poor man uh, was married uh, to a prostitute, and, and God used that as an example of, of the adulteress and, and, and uh, that type of, of relationship. Even Jesus uh, would pick up on it and call his generation in Matthew uh, 12, and again in Matthew 16, he would call them an evil and adulterous uh, generation. And when you think about the idea of, of the adulteress, this is what uh, Israel often did, is they wouldn't completely abandon God, but what they would do is want to serve God and serve other gods as well. And that's why the prophets would often call them adulteresses. You want your husband, your true husband, God the Father, but you also want over here as, as well. And James picks up on that when he calls us, you adulterous people, and then continues on, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of, of God. And when James is using that word friendship here, this is far more than just the, the cordial acquaintance or just being friendly, you know, good morning, and, and passing by. Uh, the word friendship here, and I'm quoting from a commentator who, who puts it this way, is sharing all things in unity, both spiritual and physical. And, and at the time, uh, this would have, have made sense. That goes, the definition kind of goes back into the Hellenistic times, actually, uh, before Christ was born, even, uh, of this idea of friendship, this tight, tight friendship. And that's the type of friendship that James is talking about here, because what he says is, is there's far different values between what God uh, values and, and what the world values. Values. In fact, the divide is, is so great that if you accept one, you're really rejecting the other. Even if it's just for a short uh, time. You know, you say, well, I'll take God in this part of my life, but I want the world over here. Uh, what you've done is still, uh, you're rejecting at some point uh, the true God. And as if the tone of, of this letter isn't difficult enough, starting out with you adulterous people, uh, we stumble into a problem here almost right away in, in verse 5. James gives us uh, one of the most difficult uh, verses to translate uh, in the Bible. Not, not uh, interpret, but simply to translate. How do we translate. And I mention this because as I was reading this, your text may have said something a lot different than what I read. And, and there's some, I'm not going to go into a Greek lesson here in verse 5, but it's very difficult because it's hard to pick out what the object, uh, the, the subject, and then the main object, and what word is supposed to go with, with what. Uh, it's the same Greek text that we're using here, but how do we translate uh, verse 5? Well, let me read again what my translation says. Uh, do you suppose uh, that it says, or do you suppose uh, it is no purpose that Scripture says, and here's the tricky part, uh, my translation reads this, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Yours might read uh, far different than that. And I'll tell you why here in, in just a minute. Uh, but the first problem is James isn't actually quoting an Old Testament passage here. There's not one specific passage that says exactly that. What he's doing is giving us a summary of many Old Testament passages or much of the Old Testament teaching. And so we have to come up with what he's saying here, and, and uh, there's a few different ways uh, you could translate this. Uh, in the NIV, or the King James Version, um, they, they take it differently. Um, and the idea, and I will read what the NIV says, although the King James says basically the same thing using different words. Uh, NIV reads this, that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Uh, in other words, the idea is that uh, we envy um, and that human history is one long story of, of envy. 
And sometimes when you have trouble translating, you don't know exactly how you should put the words together, you go to context. And for context, uh, the people that translate the NIV and the King James Version, uh, they'll go with verses 1 through 3, and, and it makes perfect sense. What is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? Uh, your passions at war, you desire and you do not have, you covet. And uh, so the, the context fits nicely there. And, and I'm not going to argue that they got it wrong because you can certainly translate it that way. But I will say uh, I prefer the way the uh, ESV or the New American Standard translates it. Uh, more along this lines of, as I'll read mine again, uh, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the context here then would be verse 4, when he calls us adulteresses. And then he yearns jealously. And, and uh, the Old Testament prophets would speak to this as well. Zechariah chapter 1, uh, the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. It's this righteous uh, jealousy that God has for his, his people. And I, I prefer this emphasis, and this is the way I'll go forward, because it shows us how much it grieves God that we who were made in his image and have been given his spirit. He said that in the Old Testament, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and how he's given us this spirit and yet we'll sin and we'll reject him or at best maybe we'll just hold him in, in the same honor that we give the world. We have God and we have the world and we'll kind of bounce between the two. And how God grieves over this sin. But yet, in his, his hatred of sin, yet in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, James has been showing us throughout the book how we have been sinning. We, we sin in how we've treated each other, showing favoritism uh, inappropriately. Sin in how we speak. Sin in those things that we desire, uh, that we have more envy than we do grace. Still, God gives more grace, but there is, there is a needed response on our part here. He gives grace to the humble. And again, we have an Old Testament theme here. He's, he's uh, taking almost exactly from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, towards the scornful, he, or towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And again, I will remind you, as, as I started out, that James is on our side here. Despite the names he's calling us and, and, and what he will tell us here, he's a lot like, I think, of almost that football coach or, 
or maybe if, uh, if you've uh, been in band or a play and, and you've had a, a somewhat demanding director or, or a boss who can be demanding, not a, a jerk, but a good boss who can be demanding and, and, and wants you to succeed. You know, he wants you to be at your very best and, and be able to succeed so that, so that you uh, can succeed and, and the company can succeed or, or whatever it is. And that's what James is like here. He's, he's unflinching in his words and he's going to be very, very direct because, uh, because he wants us. He wants us to succeed in our godliness. I love how uh, one commentator puts it. He said, clearly, uh, James sees his readers as both Christians and in need of a wake-up call that will bring home the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behavior. There's a great danger uh, in living an ungodly life. And James wants to make sure we understand that. And he gives us uh, this command in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And just that word, submit, it's a Greek compound word. It's actually kind of a neat word, but it's, it's a compound word in, in the Greek. And when you put the words together, you could translate it uh, like this, put in order under. Submit to God, put in order under God. It suggests that there's a hierarchy and that God is at the top. It's not God and world at the top. It's certainly not God and me at the top. It is God at the top. And everything else is ordered under him. Submit yourselves to God. And what does that mean? Well, uh, he continues on. Resist the devil and he will flee from you in verse 7. And you know, I've often had this thought, and, and um, I'm almost glad when someone tells me they've had the, the same uh, struggle, uh, not because I like to see people struggle, but I like to know I'm not the only one struggling, but they will say something along the line of, uh, you know, it seems like I'm rejecting the devil, but he doesn't seem to flee. In fact, the more I resist, it seems the more ferocious he gets. And I think we all know that feeling. And I love what one commentator did with that because he spent a lot of time uh, discussing this idea of fleeing from the devil and, and he will flee from you and it just doesn't really seem like that sometimes, quite often actually. But he pointed out uh, Jesus in the wilderness when, when the devil was tempting Jesus and, and Jesus answered him three times and, and resisted him three times. And then the devil left. Now, the devil came back, and granted, he came back more ferociously. But when Jesus fleed from him, when he rejected him, the devil did leave. And I love how the commentator then puts it. And I quote him, he says, when we resist Satan, he must seek another time. 
When we do not resist, we have given him more time. And when you think about it, that is brilliant. You know, I didn't come up with it because it's brilliant. (laughs) But when you think about that, when you're in that situation with that person or that group of people or maybe something you're watching on your computer or TV, some place where there's the temptation, if you let yourself linger there, you're just giving the devil more time to make you fall into that temptation. But when you flee... He will, he'll have to find another time. And he may come back more ferociously, but you've given yourself some more time to grow in the word. You've given yourself more time to be established in what God is wanting from you. But you linger, and the devil's going to stay right there with you. Resistance is often difficult But it's never futile. It's never futile. But you resist the devil, and then, as James uh, goes on, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And there's a great promise in there that sometimes we we, we overlook. That we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. In fact, Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when he was uh, speaking with Israel, this this was one of uh, the things he told Israel in in verse 7 of chapter 4. He said, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And think about what he's saying. We can go to God. What a great God this is. We can go to him, and whenever we call upon him, he's with us. He's with us. And so we draw near to him in our submission, in our worship. We draw near to him for strength in resisting the devil. And we draw near to him in our repentance. And in our total repentance. And that's where James goes next at the end of verse 8. When he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hands, uh, it represents our actions. Or what we do outwardly. Hearts. Uh, represents our thoughts, what's going on inside of us. It's, it's an outward and an inward repentance, total, full repentance. And he, I love how he does this, although the language is harsh, he leaves us no doubt that we're sinners. We can't even argue that we haven't sinned. He won't allow that. We're sinners, double-minded We have let the love of the world compete with our love for God. And he's not going to let us wiggle out of that one. But our response to this in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And once again, he's calling on some Old Testament prophet language here. 
because this is how the prophets would tell Israel to repent. Mourn and weep over your sin. But even more than that, this is also language that was used for those people who did not repent and judgment came down on them. Then they mourned and then they wept. And James is telling us here, he's saying, do it now. Mourn over your sin now rather than mourning and weeping for eternity. Know what your sin is right now and mourn for it now. You know, Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 6, he gave us uh, somewhat of a conundrum. Uh, in verse 21 of, of chapter 6, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then just a few verses later, in verse 25, Jesus said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Paul uh, kind of has the, the same thing, but when we put the puzzle all together, we can see what they're telling us. In the face of our sin, we need to weep and mourn and lament our sin. And real repentance... Not the worldly repentance. Uh, not merely weeping because we got caught. But weeping because we've sinned against God. Paul picks up on this idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, I've talked with people and they have come to that point where they were sorry for their sin, but then they realized they weren't really sorry for their sin, they were sorry they got caught for their sin. And then they realized they had the world and God in the same place. Their sin wouldn't have been so bad if they hadn't been caught but once they got caught, then their friends looked down on them a little bit, and their family uh, didn't like them quite so much. And they realized, I have not submitted everything to God. My hierarchy's all messed up. And as we live in this world, and as we get away with sin sometimes, it's easy to boast and, and be arrogant to even mock our sin. We see people do this all the time. Mock the very idea of, of judgment, that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, and mock it all and think that we get away with it all. I don't care as long as I don't get caught. But James says that kind of laughter will turn to mourning. Mourn now in the face of your sin. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And it might sound strange when we hear this language that James gives us of mourning and weeping, especially in the light of, of some of the other parts of scripture where Paul writes, for instance, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. 
We're to rejoice in the Lord always. And here James is telling us, weep, mourn, calls us wretched. But Paul, when Paul speaks of that joy, that's the joy we feel when we realize our sins are forgiven in Christ. But what James is warning us about is that fleeting, superficial joy when we indulge in sin and think we can get away with it. And James wants us to squarely face the reality of sin and how it grieves God and how it should grieve us that we're sinning against God. He wants us to bring... uh, that to the Lord and to come to him with repentance and humility and then we can experience the cleansing work of the Spirit and that's where we find the true joy then and I mentioned uh, uh, Marcionism that that idea of, of the God of the Old Testament can't be the God of the New Testament because that God, uh, he hates sin and he, he's judging sin, but, but we want this other God who just forgives uh, everything. And, and that heresy is still being taught. It has different names now, but that same basic heresy uh, is, is all around us. And I have many issues uh, with that teaching. And one of the issues, in light of the passage Uh, that we have before us today is that it really profanes uh, the nature of God. God is, is still the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He still really hates sin. He's going to judge sin. And yet... Despite that hatred of sin and the very fact that we have sinned, despite that, we go back to verse 6, he gives more grace. You see, we can't weaken or, or try to cushion God's hatred of sin, but rather, in light of that, see his wonderful grace and love and that he died for our sins and that Christ was hung on the cross and despite the fact that we have sinned against him and how much he hates sin when we humble ourselves and repent and come to him he draws near to us with love and grace and mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great grace, grace greater than our sin. We do repent of our sin. Help us to hate our sin, that we can walk more closely with you that we can glorify you better, that we can be a beacon in this world. 
Help us in those moments of temptation to resist the devil. Grow us deep and strong in your word. And thank you for your great love shown to us through Christ Jesus on the cross. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you will stand and we'll turn to hymn 202. Great song here. We'll sing verses 1, 2, and 4 of Amazing Grace. <laughs>